my friends are gone and my hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play and I'm crazy for love, but I'm not coming on. I'm just paying my rent every day in the Tower of Song. Said to Hank Williams, how lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet, but I hear him coughing all night long. Oh, a hundred floors above me in the Tower of Song. Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The Empress Dale Bridge is indisposed. In her place, we get the second rater, the uh, producer for Talkback with Attitude tomorrow morning between 9.30 and 10.30, Andy. Hello, Hello, Andy. Joe. How are you going? I- I'm really pleased I'm, interview- I'm not interviewing you. Yeah, because you know, be I, I have interviewed. I, I did have. I, know, I have been there. We've been there. That's the reason. I'm not saying you haven't had an interesting, I've got out but of short it now. life. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dale, get better. Yeah. You know, I wasn't here last week. You're not here this week. We've always got Andy. He's you know just <laughs> like a used hanky chief. We can always pull him out whenever we want to and roll oh. him across our face. Oh, now, listen to this, this 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 esoteric conversation. We have our special guest, a man nobody knows. Because I'm going to use his real name, Mr. Campbell Walker. Hello, Joe. Hello. I know that voice. <laughs> I've heard that voice before. You're not Cam Walker, are you? I am indeed, yes. You're kidding. No, I am. <laughs> you look like me, <laughs> old and decrepit. Indeed. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Look, I am. Uh, you know, there are, there are two types of activists in the world. Mm. There's people like you and me and people like Andy, you know. He's a meteorite, you know. He's going to change the world in the next twelve months, and he just burns out. I just turn my mic off as well. Thought <laughs> I'd get comfortable. What's the point of abusing you if you turn your mic off? <laughs> Can you turn it off, please? And then there are people like you and me, stars. We just shine forever because we're too stupid to turn it off. Now, Cam, we only have two questions. Mm-hmm. Think of yourself sitting in the canoe. Mm-hmm. I've got the rudder, not you. And we go up these little tributaries that look interesting. You know, sometimes there are wolves, sometimes there are crocodiles, and sometimes there are flowers. Okay, so two questions. The first question takes 10 seconds. The next question takes 55 minutes. But before we start, do you play a musical instrument? No, I don't. 
very lucky because if you do play a musical instrument or sing, you can actually save yourself for a few minutes because we allow you to sing or play a musical instrument. But if you don't, bad luck. I'm so glad I don't. <laughs> and I, I think the people listening will be very grateful as well. Yeah, well, I'm sure all those friends of yours will know that. This, this is Mr. Not Campbell Walker, but Cam Walker. Now, Cam, what year were you born, just to orientate listeners? 1963. You're a youngster. You make me look like a grandfather. <laughs> well, you look so old. Is the bald in here? This is radio, Cam. You know, you've got, you got to talk. Yes, yes. <laughs> because I, people can't see you nodding. I know. I'm very well trained that you don't uh, say yes to people. You nod to indicate that you're following what they're saying. So yeah, you're a listener, eh? You've learned that the art to good activism is to listen. Indeed. I don't know how you became a star. All right. And the second question is, what's the first thing you remember? I think the very first thing is playing in Badger's Creek near mm-hmm. Hillsville. And moving the rocks around in the stream. That's wonderful. Beautiful mm. water there. It still mm. is. It is. Yeah. So what, your parents lived up there? Yeah, we lived in the eastern suburbs, Ringwood Way. Um, grew up there. So, yeah. So, so, was... so an outing would be to go down to Badgers Creek. Yeah, 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 which is probably 20 minutes yeah. up the road from there. Yeah, because in those days you kind of went for picnics. It was cheap, accessible. A lot of nice country. A lot of nice country. It was yeah. before Melbourne sprawled, obviously. You know, the 60s, mm. everyone moved out to the east, followed mm. the railway line, and, mm. you know, mm. it just kept going eastwards. But at that point, the edge of the city was pretty much where we were living, which was uh, Heathmont, just yeah. near Ringwood. Yeah, and before that, uh, we've interviewed people who were a little bit older than you. Used to think of the edge of the city as uh, uh, Blackburn, you know, and even Glen Whaley at one stage, you know, the apple orchards. The apple orchards, yeah, mm. yeah. So Heathmont, where I grew up, was, you know, housing, but mostly paddocks, pine plantations and orchards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I guess in that time from being a kid to being a teenager, it was pretty much all gone except for the housing. Mm. So uh, is your dad, are your parents still alive? My mum is, yeah. yeah. And what's her name? Marion. Marion, what, all right, we're going to ask you a deep question okay. here. What type of mum was she? You can tell us she's not listening. She was a fantastic mum. Fantastic mum. Yeah. She was, absolutely. Why, why, why? Uh, She was always remarkably present. She was a nurse, an emergency nurse, and, you know, had obviously seen a lot of pretty heavy stuff in her life. She's deeply compassionate and, uh, you know, really instilled in us, me and my brother, you know, the need to basically be good people, as she Mm. saw it. So Mm. she was a real kind of influence, I think, ethically. Mm. I wouldn't say morally. She was never a moraliser, but she was deeply ethical in her approach to the world. Mm. Did she she work at Barunda or the Austin or...? Uh, The... um, Box oh, Hill? No, further in. Uh, the, further in, uh, St Vincent's. St Vincent's, thank yeah. you. No, no, no. Uh, the one south of there. Um, uh, Prince Henry's, which, Prince is, Henry's. which has disappeared. Yes, so she'd indeed. commute every day. Oh, no, that was before I came along. So she right. used to live in the northern suburbs and right. commute across town mm-hmm. to Prince Henry's. Yeah. And was she born here in Australia? Or? Yes, I think we're fourth or fifth generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. English, Irish, Welsh, Scottish. Good to see a good Anglo-Saxon here. We need more of your type these days. You know, the world, the country's been flooded by people. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's been flooded. That's what my Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander friends tell me. There's all these immigrants. <laughs> I'm never here 239 years ago, they keep telling me. Including the white folks, yep. Yep, especially the white folk. And your dad, what was he like? He was awesome. He mm-hmm. was, uh, I think he was a 
generation, you know, ahead of himself. He worked for Myers, mm-hmm. you know, the department store. Um, and I reckon, you know, if he'd had the chance, he probably would have been a, a beatnik in the 50s. But, you know, he was a family man and making it work for his family. He died quite young from a heart attack. Mm. Uh, but for that generation, and when I think of, you know, growing up in that street, mm. he was really present you know, for me and my brother, uh, in a way, I don't think a lot of the dads were, to be honest. Well, he was lucky in many ways. The fact that he uh, worked for Myers, he'd get these weekends off in those days, and you know, he, shops were open from nine till five and nine till one on Saturday. That's right. That was the beauty. So workers could have a family life. Indeed. And it obviously rubbed off on you. You yep. got the dividends of that social contract. So, how old was he when he died? Uh, 62. 60. And how old? You, you and your brother would have been a bit, would have been adults by yeah, then? Yeah, we yeah, we were. Yeah. yeah. Right. Was it unexpected? Uh, no, he'd had a number of heart attacks. A number of heart yeah. attacks. But yeah. but when it happened, did he linger on or it was just... Un- no, it was pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. In many ways, you were fortunate. Yeah, and he had had a heart attack about 10 years before. So, you know, that had made us go, geez, life is short and mm. precious. So, mm. you know, that last 10 years had been mm. particularly good. Mm. And I think he really lived his life to the full, you know, knowing that, Possibly he wasn't going to, you know, make, make the 80 years. Mm, mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think he lived with few regrets. Well, Cam, you don't feel, you don't feel the radical mould, I'm afraid. You know, wonderful childhood, living in the outer suburbs, great parents. Oh, sorry. Know, what's going on we'll here? We'll find something, I'm sure. Oh, no, 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 no. That's what I'm saying. That's the beauty of Radical Australia. It just shows that people come from all different walks of life into their radical activity. They just kind of filter down. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating because not everybody has the same background as a radical activist. True. So yep. what, 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 obviously you went, what, primary school locally? Yep, primary school. Well, Heathmont Primary. Heathmont, yeah. Did you, did you excel at anything? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Average. Yeah, I, was, I was beautifully average. Yeah, well, Walker, that's a common name, yep. Average. And, how did, and secondary college, where did you uh, go? I went to a regional Catholic college called Aquinas. Aquinas. In Ringwood. In Ringwood. Yeah. That's very nice. What was that like? Look, that was interesting. It was Christian Brothers when I started, and mm. then, you know, the la- I don't know, they all kind of died, went off. Some, or died yeah. off, or yeah. I don't know where they went. So yeah. by the end, it was mostly, you know, just teachers. Yeah. Um, it was a good school. It was just a regional college, so it wasn't anything mm. fancy. But yeah. um, I reckon I got a good education. I reckon I had some pretty good mentors there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have any mates from those days. It's no. not like, you know, that was the days I look back to. But um, it was, you know, it was a good mm. upbringing. I assume you're a valiant lion on the sporting field. I played mediocre football. <laughs> mediocre um, football. Right. What position? Defence. I, oh, right. I like defence, yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Yep. I played soccer and then I went to Aussie Rules and played that for so three years. So you played defence in soccer, did you? Uh, yes, I did, yeah. but mostly defence in Aussie, Aussie Rules. rules. Right. Yep. How long did you play soccer for? Two years. That would have been unusual in those days. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Faintly weird, probably. Yeah, you would have met all these ethnics. Yes, Mm. Such as it was in the outer eastern suburbs in the late sixties, yeah. Mm, mm, the Bolts and the uh, Croats and the yes. Serbs. Yes, I remember there were Eastern yeah. Eastern Europeans who yes, were always much yeah. better so soccer polite. players. You're such a polite person. <laughs> Obviously, they'd uh, set up their own clubs and kept up their own own hostilities. That was the beauty of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was oblivious to all of that. The, yes. I guess the thing about my family was they were really unpolitical. Mm. You know that we mm. never would have a political mm. conversation. So you know, my world view in many ways, I I, I feel very lucky, but mm. I didn't have any analysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Blank slate. Yeah. So, so when you left high school, you're a blank slate. I was starting to scratch a few things on it. Like what? Um, well, I start in high school. I did a lot of bushwalking. 
and that introduced me to the world beyond, you know, the burbs. Mm. And I saw a lot of places getting trashed for logging, which got me to think about things. So that kind of, you know, in, kind of propelled me on the path to environmental activism. And then you go to uni and suddenly, you know, you're mm. a free person. You can jump on the train and go into town. And that quickly rolled into, I guess, social justice activism. All right, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Okay. I guess this is like... If, we're we're if, too, moving too fast. No, right? no, we're not moving too fast. It's as if it's, you know, you've done this before. I mean, obviously, we, we want to... Okay. A bit, bit more depth than okay, you used sure. to because you're not okay. here because of what you've done. You're here because of the journey. Okay. All right. And we're interested in the journey, how you got there. So you left high school. Yep. When you uh, finished, did you have enough? Were your grades good enough to do anything? They weren't totally awesome, but they got me where I wanted to be, which was a teacher's college. Teacher's college. Yeah. And how did that go? Uh, loved the first two years, mm-hmm. ran away in the third year. Ran away um, for yeah. the year, yeah. um, and then struggled th- with the moral crises of being a teacher. As I was becoming an anarchist, and did I want to do it? Uh, so yeah, kind of turned the last two years into three years, but finally stumbled over the line. What year was this? I graduated in eighty six. You just used the A word, anarchist. How did that come into the conversation? You were struggling as a teacher trainee. So we were working... What, 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 what happened? Um, well, I was influenced by a lot of politics. Um, what, what university is this? So this was what was then called Deakin College, which yep. got subsumed... Uh, sorry, Rusden, which got subsumed, subsumed by into Deakin. Deakin. Uh-huh. Uh, environmental science, uh-huh. so Bachelor of Ed in Environmental Science. Had some pretty, you know, radical... Uh, lecturers there and particularly, you know, being exposed to feminist thinking because you do all the generic year one and two, you know, kind of... Radical psych- lecturers. Yes. At Rusden College. There were indeed. There were some Victoria lecturers. There were, yes. Um, <sighs> God, I, this explains a lot of things. Here we have a good, brought-up boy, great parents, great upbringing, great Catholic education, goes to Rusden College and bang, Ruined in two ruined, years. Yeah. Ruined. So where did this A thing come, this anarchist thing come? So I guess, I, you know, as you do, you shop around as you, you shop around, do you? an activist. What, you know, you, you shop around, do you? Yeah, you, you, you know, you try something, maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, in your teen years into your early 20s, you're uh-huh. trying to figure out who you are and what your place is in the world. Uh-huh. And environmentalism led me into social justice. Early 80s was, of course, the big national liberation struggles around yes, the world, yes, Latin yes, America. Yes. So, of course, you know, fell in with a whole lot of socialist groups and kind of, you know, learnt that. Socialist groups. And learnt that world view. And hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. How did you fall in with socialist groups? What happened? Well, you go into town, you see what's going on, someone gives you a leaflet, you go, oh, that rally looks good, you go to the rally, someone sells you the paper, you go to the meeting. Not the know, paper. The oh. paper, comrade. Um, Citizen, thank you. Sorry. There is a difference, you yes, realise. A lot of people that. don't. Yes. They think we're all comrades. I'm not your comrade. I'm we're citi- fellow okay. citizens having a discussion. Okay. Now, so... It's, you kind of were being influenced by all these diverse mm-hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is post-apartheid. All the apartheid struggle is still it's going on. It's still going on, yeah. It's still going on. And, but uh, Nicaragua, El yeah, Salvador, Ecuador, really all those struggles, the, the yeah. seminal kind yeah. of struggles. Yeah. And uh, then, you, then you said in third year you were kind of had this anarchist enlightenment. What happened? Well, I went to Tasmania, the Franklin blockade. Right. Got arrested. Did 10 days in jail. Excuse me. You did 10 days in jail. In Why am I Risden? talking to a criminal? <laughs> What was the charge? Uh, I think it was just trespass, but trespass. we refused to accept the bail conditions. Oh, yeah, I know. It was yep. normal, yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, and, you know, 
nice young guy that had probably barely spoken to a cop in his mm. life suddenly in jail. Mm. Uh, you know, you think about a lot of stuff, you're exposed to a lot of stuff. Mm. Came out of that, spent the rest of that summer on the blockade, which was transformative for me because I just met so many people who were clearly activist. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't go back to uni. Excuse me, why couldn't you go back to uni? Uh, university was just too small for what was going on, you know, in my head at that point, I think. What? Um, you thought there were more important things to do? Yes. Like save some prophetic little river in yep. Tasmania. Uh, uh, what was it, a leech-ridden ditch, according yeah, to the yeah. Premier well, of the I've time. been there. It is a leech-ridden ditch, but it's but a nice one. It's a beautiful it's one. It's a beautiful yeah. one, yeah. It's yeah. got that silence and about it. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Yep. Yeah. And at the end of that summer of blockading, I borrowed a raft and rafted down that Excuse river. Excuse me? You borrowed a raft? From... Like you had... stole a raft? No, no. no, no, we, no we, right. we took it back. <laughs> um, there were, you know, dozens and dozens of rafts donated as part of the campaign for the mm. blockading. Uh, what, and What was wrong with you that you borrowed a raft? Didn't you want to go to a film or play Nintendo or no, something like that? No, You just wanted, wanted to go down the front. I went down the river and it took us a month. A and month. That in itself was transformative. Did, you didn't look at each other as potential food sources like the old convicts, we, did you? We were getting low on food by the end, but uh, didn't come A to month. That. Tell us about it. This, this is fascinating. So what type, is it a rubber dinghy or a raft? Yeah, what they called a rubber ducky, so a yeah, small rubber raft. Ducky. Yep. Now, how many of you were there? Uh, there were four of us. Four of us. How did you, because that's, that's a pretty treacherous riverbank, how did you kind of, um, what did you do at night? I uh, just set up camp. Right. Um, we didn't have a map. We had quite a few adventures because we really didn't have a clue what we were doing and only one of us had ever really been in a raft before. Mm. Did you have any water? There was plenty of water in the river. <laughs> we had just enough food. Uh, we Yeah, and we just found our way and it was mm. magic. Could you understand why the uh, escaped convicts in the 1820s and 30s resorted to cannibalism in that environment? I couldn't see anything to eat in that yeah. entire you know month on the river. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing, is there? There's nothing there. That uh, well, of course it would have been for Aboriginal people, but mm. you know um, you don't see a lot of you know you'd see platypuses and you know birds, and that was pretty much it when you're on the river. Mm. So would you describe this as a defining moment for you? That would trip? have been my defining year. Um, I came back to Melbourne. I worked for the winter. Hang and on, then, hang on. What year? 1983. 83, so you yep. came back to Melbourne. After the blockade and after going down the river. Right. I worked in the ski industry to get a bunch of money because I could, you know, work... Ski to, industry. Yeah, as in like a ski shop, you know, ski... Oh, right, I thought yep. you were a ski instructor. No, no nothing, <laughs> nothing that fancy. <laughs> or a DJ in one of the no. hotels. No, nothing like oh, that. I was a boot fitter. A boot fitter. Um, right. Did you cut your fingers? No, I didn't actually. That's that's amazing. Now I've never been a boot fitter, but I've had boots fitted, right? In the snow, and I have cut one or two fingers. No, I, I, I didn't do bulk, that. I think you didn't do that. No, you're very good. Um, and so, got, where, where did you work in the snow? Uh, well, I worked in Melbourne actually at a ski shop. Oh, that one. Um, oh God. <laughs> you take it. No wonder I ask questions, Cam. Here I'm thinking you're in the snow fitting oh, boots. Oh, I see. You no, know, up, up on the mountain. Yeah, no. No I wonder you didn't cut your sh- no fingers. No. <laughs> Um, I've lost all respect for you. Okay, yeah. well, that's reasonable. Should I leave now? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> and this anarchist business. Yeah. Did this happen in Tasmania or when you came Well, back? it was it was kind of slowly evolving, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, after the winter, I went to Alaska, which was the big dream that I wanted to follow, to mm-hmm. go there, and that was equally revelatory for me in terms of 
been in really big landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess on that journey, I ended up hitching for about eight months up through Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I just met a lot of really good people. And a lot of the people I met were progressive people, mm-hmm. you know, and they'd you, did, you didn't meet Sarah? Thankfully, no. <laughs> well, not thankfully. It could have been interesting. You yeah, could, it could have been You could have seen Russia. Yeah, yeah, I could have seen but, Russia from her house. Yeah, that's right. Which, um, and she wasn't lying. No, because no. you can. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what I. That's, I thought that was very. I've been to Alaska, and I thought that was very unfair. Yeah, you know, when she said she, could, of course, she could see Russia, but now the Russia's her friend, so it doesn't matter, does it? No, that's no. true. They're the Republicans' besties. So, was it like hitchhiking in Alaska in 1984? It was. It felt pretty out there. You know, it was got obviously pre-internet days, so mm. no one knew where I was, and sometimes you know things would happen that would make you go, "Geez, well, I'm glad I got out of that car." So it was. <laughs> You know, some interesting moments, mm. but um, I worked for a guy in the eastern part of Alaska for, mm. you know, a couple of months on a building job, and that was pretty fantastic, and it kind of gave me what I needed mm. in terms of a lot of quiet time. And mm. But I did start to meet anarchists. I met a lot of ex-unionists. Of course, in the United States, they have the tradition of the IWW in a, right. in a way that, you know, we, we don't, we don't right. have here. And that was a real culture of, I guess, resistance, and we... You know, I'd never been exposed yeah. to that here. Well, I've got to do an apology now, Cam. There Please is do. an IWW in Melbourne. Very oh, small, yes, but they there are is. still there. Yes, no. So, I, so our apologies. Yes, I'm very yeah. sorry to um, they keep up the my 19, friends 1905 tradition. Yes, you may not have any friends there. So, what did anarchy mean to you then? Responsibility mm-hmm. uh, and full and active engagement in society. Mm. So, not standing aside and not being the learned, innocent bystander. Right, right. So that's an excellent definition. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you came to that over over time. Yep. Did you get a, a, sl- a husky sledge ride? I didn't. <laughs> you didn't go to Alaska then. What's wrong with you, boy? Indeed. No, I didn't. Uh, didn't really interest but, me, to but be why honest. why Alaska? Just the wild? Or? Yeah, just the wild, the big, big wild. I'm quite obsessed with mountains mm-hmm. and yeah. cold environments and yeah. figured I needed to go there. Bloody Badger's Creek. It's got a lot to answer it for, does, I reckon. Possibly, I reckon yeah. it must have. No, no, think about it, you know. It must have. Must have. I mean, we're not born that way. No. You... We tend to run away from the cold and the heat. Yep. And you go for it. So you came back and uh, had you qualified by then as a teacher? No. So then I did another two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, got more involved with anarchist politics, particularly mm-hmm. through the squatting scene. Right. Uh Came out the other end of that, pretty much like the slingshot, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because very exhausting. It is exhausting, yep. And then minimal minimal gains and a lot yep. of personal um, difficulties and that type of That's thing. That's a very fair call of that yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, and I think got more involved back in env- environmental issues and Indigenous struggles. Mm. Did you ever graduate as yes. a teacher? Yes, yep. Oh. And I taught for two years. Where did you teach? I taught at a Catholic school for a year. That's nice. Yeah. And I taught um, at a a state government special school that had mm. a number of experimental schools. Right. And then I taught a, at a high school in the mm. Dandenongs. Well, that, that, that's a good uh, generalisation in the three main areas. Mm. What, what would you think of of the special school and the Catholic school and the general school? Did you think there was any major differences in the way education is peddled out these days? It, I found it a bit hard to tell because I was kind of – I think I was – you know, being a teacher, you've you got to find your way. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Which yeah. means it's really in front of your face. Right. So I, I felt like I didn't really see the bigger landscape, I guess, 
at that point in my life, I went, wow, in the Catholic system, there isn't much of a union movement. So, you know, I discovered union. So, you know, I really enjoyed being at the state school where there was a really present union. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, the, the the Catholic school had its own radical politics in its own way. And, you know, I, I loved working there as well. Mm. Uh, anything about the special school? I wasn't there for very long. Well, very so, long. Yeah. Okay. So after two, three years, you say, this is not for me. No. Um, well, they say you're not for us. <laughs> what was it like? It, it was more circumstance, actually. Oh. I went back to Alaska. Again. Um, again. And I was living in the Dandenongs. And when I came back, there was just no teaching work because it was right. wall-to-wall teachers yep, in yep. the Dandenongs. Mm. So I you know, worked in a plant nursery and lots of kitchens and you know, did all that. Uh, mm. was briefly a ward orderly at a hospital, et cetera, et cetera. What was that like? Oh, I loved doing lots of different things. How about um, the, the ward orderly? That was confronting i think it is confronting yeah yeah when you're going to confront sickness and death yep yep and with very little you know preparation for it as well Uh, you know um as the ward orderly you're kind of almost at the bottom of the food chain so you're not you know you're almost as invisible as the patients are in some way so i i found that yeah quite hard things seem to have changed a little bit a little bit people begin to understand the importance of the uh, the orderly in that environment yep and uh, in some hospitals, they're now using the orderly also as a, a lifter and yep. all those type of yep. things. So they're actually broadening the. But it's interesting that you did that. So how, how did you get to stay to Alaska for so long? Isn't there a three month? Yeah, what, I what did you I do? Think Just I overdid, overdid your visa or something there? I think maybe I left, went to Canada, and came back. All right. So right. I, got, I think I did three months and three months, and then right. I did about four right. and a half months. Well, see, I don't know if I believe you, Kim. I'm going to ask you a trick question. <laughs> okay, yes. Because uh, if you've been to Alaska, you'll know this. You'll know okay. the answer to this question. All right. Tell us about Captain Cook's association. Our Captain Cook's, the colonisers' association with Alaska. He was right down the end in the Aleutian chain, wasn't he? I don't think he went up to the mainland. Oh, he did. He, he did. Oh, I didn't mm. know that. Okay. Mm. I, why, I, did they, why did they go there? I've It'll got, fit in with your medical orderly work. Ah. I, I can't even guess what that well, was. you know about scurvy. Ah, yes, of right? course. And yep. the, the tops of the spruce tree. Ah, they had vitamin C, did they? They had vitamin C. So they used ah. to stop. They used to stop. It was part of their stop on their journeys and their long journeys. They'd stop at Alaska. That. Harvest the top of the spruce tree, yep. boil it down, and uh, bottle it or ah. put it in barrels and drink it. Which means he was down towards the south, right? I yeah. was thinking Aleutians, yeah. which are yeah. very barren. So, yeah, yeah more yeah. down the panhandle. Yeah, and, and there's a number of places which are actually named after him in Alaska. Well, I totally missed that one. Thank you. <laughs> well, you haven't been to Alaska, have you? <laughs> Obviously not. We haven't done the tourist trip like no. I did. <laughs> you did the mountain men's trick, getting up in the mountains. All right, you come back. You've done Alaska to the deaf. What yep. happens? Well, I couldn't get work as a teacher, so I did all those various jobs. Yep. Uh, two things happened. I, with a bunch of friends, decided mm-hmm. to set up a community up in the mountains. Excuse me. Uh, like an you intentional decided community. Dec- what year was this? Oh, gosh. Well, mid-80s. Late 80s. Unintentional. 88, 89, Unintentional community. Is that just, you know, fancy language for a group of people getting together and living a lifestyle they want to live? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so what was the basis of this intentional community? Living in community, you know, greater level of sharing of resources, uh, mm. greater level of sharing of, you know, raising kids and, you know, that mm. kind of... Did you have kids at that stage? I didn't, know, no. No, but a couple of people in our group did. Had, right. Um, so, you know, I guess I was, I, I felt I was an uncle, you mm-hmm. know, to, mm-hmm. to some of those children. So um, how big was this intentional community? There was probably about 40 people went through that, it over the seven years. Well, that is, that, is a um, big, that is a big commitment, seven years. Yeah, yep. And parallel to that, 
I also started working for Friends of the Earth, so I couldn't find work as a teacher. Mm. And then I just got very lucky and happened to be coming into exotic Collingwood one day and went to the Faux building and saw a sign advertising a job and I got the job. So mm. I kind of had lived that you know parallel life. I lived in the Dandenongs. I worked oh, in I Collingwood. Tell us, about the, tell us about the interview. This would be interesting. Oh. You, you walk into Friends of the Earth. Yeah. Did they know you? No. They didn't know you from a bar of no. soap. So they took you at face value. So yep. how did the interview go? I couldn't tell you, to be honest. You can't, you don't remember. Went well enough. Well, nobody else applied. Is that what you're intimating? Uh, well, look, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. So, so what, what was the position? It was uh, an office coordinator position. Right. What does that mean? Uh Paying the bills, keeping the lights on, checking right. the mail, basically. Yeah, well, you've been to Alaska, so you'd be all right. Yep. You knew what, what it was all about. Yep. Look, it's uh, 4.30. This is uh, Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Oh, this is Joe Tosco and young Andy behind the uh, panel, making it all happen. Uh, we're interviewing Mr Campbell Walker, commonly known as Cam Walker in Melbourne circles, and uh, we're learning about his nefarious past. Hasn't been nefarious enough for only one arrest so far. Uh, probably by the time we got there, there's been a few more, yep. Like what? Oh, mostly forest, forest blockades. Forest blockades, um, right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so late 80s rainforest section group, yep. you know, really kind of thriving group. It strong, was. Strong focus on indigenous solidarity with, with the Dayak people in Malaysia. So yep. there was quite a few arrests in there one way or the other. But, yeah, mm. forest campaigning Forest mostly. campaigning. Well, um, that would have held you in good stead when you applied for the uh, FO job. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember experience. it coming up, but yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. clearly, I'd been you know doing doing some yards in the movement, mm. so I guess that mm. must have counted for something. Yeah. So how long did that last? That job. Mm. Twenty-eight years later, here I am. What you're still in the same position? Well, it's evolved. No, come on, it's, it's evolved. Yes. It's evolved. But it? it's pretty much the same oh, position. Twenty-eight years in the same job. Oh, I've only been doing my job for forty-one years, so. We're rarities. You realise that we are rarities. It doesn't happen like this anymore. No, we are. We are. We've been gifted. I feel very lucky. I found my political place. You know, my yeah. my spiritual place. And I you like. find your political place. You're more gifted than I am. I've got to work to have space to do my political activity. You're working and doing your political activity at the same time and getting paid. You're a paid agitator. <laughs> I'm nodding. Yes. <laughs> I've. I've you know, for 49 years I've been an activist and I have been looking for a professional agitator and now I've met one. Cam, can I shake your hands? Because I would have liked to have been paid and I've never been paid. Maybe because I've, I, just, I've been very lucky. Well, you are. A professional yep. agitator. Yep. All right. Yep. So, 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 so what, what things were interesting to foe in the 1990s? What type of campaigns were you involved in? We were involved in a lot of uh, social justice and peace Yeah, what, social, what does social justice mean? I'm so sick of these words. working with Indigenous people to oppose the nuclear fuel cycle, mm-hmm. so waste dumps and uranium mining in, in South Australia. Australia, South, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did a fair bit of work in North America with Indigenous communities on nukes, but that, you know, that, was, that wasn't with foe. Um, chemicals. Coot Island fire, you know, we had oh, a big hazardous fire, yes. chemicals campaign. We had a recycling campaign. Mm. Uh, we were involved with the 8X arms, yes, you know. Yes. Uh, were you part of the Naked Man Brigade? No. 
Oh, I, pity. Yes. That was no, brilliant. It, it was one of the great photos of the 20th century, the Naked Man Brigade. Yes, that's and right. And have you ever seen the Naked Man Brigade? No. Look it up. Look it up. Eight, was it 96? 90, a bit earlier, 91. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Naked Man campaign. It's very confronting. <laughs> if you're a cop with private security, you can be confronted by a group of naked men in an arms fair. It is confronting. It's it's that it's that symbolism, you know, of the flesh, blood, bone. It's very mm. essence, uh, confronting metal, mm-hmm. nuclear destruction, mm-hmm. mass destruction. Brilliant, brilliant ploy. Should be done again. All right, Are you going to organise one at far? I maybe won't. <laughs> we could organise one for the next arms fair down at uh, was it Avalon? Yeah, yeah, Avalon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They call it a. You know, thing display. All right. So you did all those campaigns. Yeah. Uh, at that stage, I don't want to. I don't want to pry too much. Did you have any major relationships or kids or anything like that? Yeah. So I did have a long term relationship in those early stages, mm. and then have had another very long term relationship. Mm. And I have two kids. Two kids. Yeah. Twelve and fifteen. Yeah. How do they feel about having an old activist as their dad? So far, so good. So far, they haven't rebelled? They haven't become accountants? I don't <laughs> drag them along to rallies as much as I used to. Exactly. Because you couldn't get them babysat. That's why you drag them to rallies. But, you know, they, they do know their way around a rally and they're pretty comfortable with that. And I, I hope and trust they'll have good politics. Yeah. Any of them ever been picked up by kids? Because that they used to do here in Melbourne in the 70s when uh, first came here in the early 80s. The cops yep. would kind of surround you and pick up the kids, take them away. Hold them, and you'd have to go and uh, sign. Sign. It was a tactic. so far so good. No, wait, it doesn't happen now. Yeah, we've got you know it's different, but yep. that's what it was like. Yeah, yep. and I'm sure a lot of people have got that experience. But going back to uh, so, it seems pretty idyllic. You're flying here, flying there. What's the most unusual place you've been to? The Navajo Reservation in the United States. Where in the United States? In Arizona. Tell us about it. Uh, so the Diné people, we call them Navajo, they call themselves Diné. Um, they have had, the government has engineered a conflict there in order to remove the Diné who live as traditional herd herd managers, basically goats and sheep, uh, because coal mining companies want access to that land. So they've said that there's a conflict between the Diné and the Hopi people and we've got to remove the Diné in order for to the To protect Hopi. the Hopi, yeah. And while we're at it, let's just open enormous coal mines. Mm. Uh, so I went there as a as a solidarity activist. And what happens is you're paired with an elder. So the elders live, you know, out in a in a in a hut, basically in the bush. Uh, and because of the nature of the conflict, if you leave your home for more than an hour or two, the government will come in and bulldoze it and destroy all your possessions. So they have to stay. They have to always have someone managing both their herd because they also round up the herds, and the herds are the basis of the economy. Um, and so you live with an elder who probably doesn't. Well, most of them that I worked with spoke very little English, mm. uh, and I spoke no Dene mm. and. Uh, you would just basically get the water, cut the wood, look after the sheep and goats and be at the house if they needed to go out. And that was mind-blowing for me. It's a matrilineal society. So, you know, that was quite remarkable to be around that and to see resistance that was on another level to anything I'd seen in Australia. Mm. And I guess, you know, my understanding is someone I've chosen to be an activist and I take my activism deeply, but... The fact is, you know, I am a comfortable middle-class white guy and at any moment I could just stop doing it if I wanted to. And I guess 
people who are defined by their reality is you either become invisible or you resist and these are people who have resisted in order to survive and so to you know and I have been in many places in the world where people have to resist but you know I think that was the time that just blew my mind and you know changed my understanding of what it really means to be indigenous in this world in the mm. 20th and 21st century is, is that struggle still ongoing or yes is, it, is. it is there used to be almost 10,000 people living in that area and now it's down to a couple of hundred oh, uh, so nice. they've just worn them down over decades mm. so were these their traditional lands or they, yes they yes were? so the Hopi live in villages mm. quite compact villages and have orchards around their villages and the, and the Danae move with their herds, herds within right. within their land. Yeah. Mm. Have you had any experience uh, living in Indigenous communities in Australia? Yes, uh, mostly with friends in Western Victoria, to be mm. honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, decades of, you know, good friendships. A uh, number of friends have now passed away, uh, so not as deeply involved now, but a number of, you know, elders who were very influential on me in the 80s and 90s. Um, so that's probably been my what deepest What type of connection. influence did they have on you? Um, as elders, as uncles and aunties. Yeah, but what type of influence? Thinking big picture. Right. Uh, thinking long term, mm-hmm. you know, and there is the whole, you know, it, it, it's, it sounds trite, but to think beyond, you know, now to think for the, the future generations and to, to be with people who do think long term, who think about their grandkids every day and think about their, you know, their ancestors every day. So, you know, we live in such a short term cycle. Yes. I'm an activist, so it's yeah. election cycles, you know, yeah. it's news cycles, it's mm-hmm. all that type of thing. So people mm-hmm. that actually think deep time, mm-hmm. you know, that's that was mm-hmm. very... Uh, you know, powerful um, and seeing quiet power, mm. you know, that these people can express. It's not noisy or flashy, but very deep, deep power, personal power. Yeah, yeah that was that term that I think came out in the 80s, time banditry. Mm-hmm. We're victims of time banditry. People steal our time. Mm-hmm. We're just chasing our tail constantly, yep. day in and day out. And yep. As you said, there's no forward thinking. Mm-hmm. It's the way our political system is and social and cultural system is structured. It's all about, and obviously with the growth of the world wide web it's become even more instantaneous mm-hmm. time banditry yep the biggest crime in the universe stealing stealing your future and your children's future because that's that's what it is i mean mm-hmm. deforestation is time yep. banditry yep you know you don't yep. think so what type of um, things did you do in the first decade of the uh, new century as an activist, as an activist. Yeah. yeah, so we spend a lot of time thinking around climate justice and that is the notion that it's rich people that are burning all the carbon and it's poor people that are suffering the results. Mm-hmm. So we put in eight years to try and get the Australian government to recognise climate displaced people, climate refugees as a separate intake category, separate to asylum seekers. And in an eight-year campaign, we came within inches of actually getting the Australian government at the time when Kevin Rudd was the, the PM uh, to accept this intake program. And there was a change of minister and it basically collapsed in about three weeks. So yes. I feel yeah. like I kind of lost that eight years. Mm. Um, when then there was the change in government and it was clear we we're going to have an incredibly hostile coalition government in power, um, I changed my focus from thinking that big picture national social justice perspective into going, well, what I can do here is to stop new fossil fuels from being dug up. Because right, let's go back. Let's go back to that, that original proposition. Yep. Climate refugees. Yep. And 
as Australians, mm. we have a big issue, haven't we? Mm. With all these little islands around mm-hmm. us. We do. Which we're basically responsible for, yep. ethically and morally yep. and economically. Yep. And a lot of them are going to go under, mm-hmm. including the Torres Strait. Yep. You ever been to Saibai? I haven't, no. No? Well, if you go to Saibai, even now the, the, the water is lapping mm-hmm. yep. uh, up. Yep. You know, it's gone up a metre in the last 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And these all these islands in the Torres Strait, which is part of Australia, yep. are at great risk. And as you know, the, the old Gilbert and Ellis and yes. all, those old, yep. all those islands are at risk. So yep. these were the people you were thinking of, weren't Exactly, they? yes. And we were working with Torres Strait Islander communities, mm. the Carteret's communities offshore mm. from Bougainville, mm. uh, but also more broadly, you know, Bangladesh, the number of people going yes. to be displaced there. So yeah. it was this notion that well, we're, we're, countries like us are causing this problem and we're kind of whistling and looking away. And if we want to be honourable global citizens, we actually have to do two things, which is accept at least some of these people to move and to help them move, to help people stay where they are through mm. adapting, if that's their choice, and also stop contributing to the, the greenhouse pollution that's driving mm. the problem. The New Zealand government has been a little bit more proactive, hasn't it, in terms mm. of taking people in who have yep. been displaced, yep. climate refugees in, in their region, I've noticed. Yeah, they have a thing called the Pacific Access Category. Which, which is what? Yeah. Well, tell us about it, uh, that. Sorry, so it allows – it's a family uh, kind of reunion program. So people say move to New Zealand, uh, you know, to work. They can bring their family or their, their extended family with them. The government maintains it's not a climate refugee program, but that's in effect what it is where there's a quota from a number of islands that are at extreme risk of sea level rise and other mm. climate change problems. Mm. The, the Pacific access category was – the, the template we were pointing to in our campaign to say, well, if they can do it over there, surely we can do it here. So why did you, um, as I said, you went big picture, small picture. Why coal? Isn't that a nice... Didn't some politician take a lump of coal into parliament? Yeah, yes, nothing did. inherently wrong with a lump of coal, is well, there? Well, you know, not you know, yet, if you look at it, put it, it in. If you put it in your room and look at it, it doesn't yeah. do any harm, does it? No, it's, it's not radioactive. It's is inert. It? Yes, it's inert. But if you burn it, it kills the planet. If you burn it at enough scale, anyway. What do you mean it kills the planet? Well, it warms up the atmosphere, traps the water. You believe that garbage, Yes, I'm afraid I do. Well, you don't know. You don't believe it. You know. I know. There's a difference. Yes, indeed. There's a difference. This is the trouble. The word belief is big, isn't it, in in political thinking? It is. My belief is this. What are beliefs based on? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Yep. Really? A set of of preconceptions. So you know that increased... CO2 emissions, mm-hmm. uh, man-made. Yep, people-made, yep. People-made, man-made, yep. human-made. And, well, dogs, well, yep. cows do, but maybe not dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that we can do something about it. Do you think Absolutely. We've re- do you think we've actually reached the critical stage where I should book my uh, seat on a spaceship? We're locked into a lot of change. You know, mm. we, our kids their world is going to be very different to the one we live in. You know, we're locked into centuries um, of really different times. Uh, that That's just on the basis of what we've been putting out over the last 100 years. If they find some way to magically suck the carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, it'll still take decades to, you know, reassert it back to uh, uh, the, the prior patterns we're in. So, yeah, we're in for a rocky ride the next generation or two mm-hmm. at best. These CO2 emissions, CO2 emissions, where, what's the main 
focus? Where's the main, where are they mainly coming from? So here in Victoria, about half of our emissions are from the stationary energy sector. So mm. all the coal we burn down in the Latrobe Valley. Next biggest thing is transport. Next biggest thing is, is uh, agriculture. So oh. we say, well, you know, you can tweak around the edges for that 1% of whatever it might be, or you go for the big 50% thing. So you want a good return on what your campaigning will be. So that's why the environment movement tends to focus on coal, because it is such a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions domestically. Yeah, but I don't like that. Why is that? I like to keep warm in winter. Yes, and we all know that there's many other alternatives. Are there? Yes, there are. Oh, what are they, Cam? I wouldn't. You know, I, mean, I thought you just got your briquettes and you put them in the fireplace, yeah, like in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things changed, haven't yeah. they? Do you listen to the, you know same exactly the same radio station from the seventies? Oh, you do actually. You do, yeah, yes. you do. Okay, oh, bad analogy there. <laughs> bad analogy. But, you know, I'm the thinking the boys lost his muscle. Yeah, bottles. yeah. So, so, what do you think the future lies? I think the the future lies in a lot in, in in trajectories going out. You know, you look at the United States, you look at the whole rise of the the new right, and and separate to that, the alt right. I think the new right is more a populist right that's scared of change, and the alt right is a emboldened fascist movement. You know, that's that's an emerging. Well, but, but do you think? But do you think the new right is basically there, the populist movement, because we really haven't addressed the issue of displacement in terms of economic displacement of people? I think that's a big part of it. The world is changing and they're scared. It's huge, of course. I mean, if you lose your livelihood. Yeah. And we we as activists really haven't tackled that problem, have we? Agreed. And if we don't tackle that problem, you will get people looking for the other. Yes. It's a big issue. And um, that's why I think the debate, the forthcoming debate about uh, a living wage Mm -hmm. is critical and essential to the the way we see ourselves as citizens. I agree, yes. It's actually not work-related. Yes, and there is that trajectory, that right trajectory, but there's also a lot of people who get, well, yes, the system isn't working, but, you know, we don't have to go to xenophobia to find a solution. Well, we don't have to go to xenophobia to find a solution, exactly, yep. but the, everybody's turning to xenophobia at the minute, but I think it's because of our own, well, maybe inability to provide a, a clearer way forward. A clearer way forward that mm. actually makes sense to people. I think, mm. you know, the left and progressive mm. people, mm. we're still stuck in rhetoric land and mm. we're not very good at speaking to people where they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. We still speak in, you know, acronyms mm. and, and yeah. strange words, whereas the right has been much better at That's right, yeah. speaking it's to that people. that bastard with a turban. Exactly. You know? Yep, yep. yep. Our, our ideas are a bit, a bit more complex. Yes, true. You know, so. Yeah, but, I mean, nothing's new, as you know, in human history. I mean, I like to look at uh, Roman society. Mm-hmm. When I, on some of the programs I do, I look at Roman society where you had the patricians, the plebeians. Yep. And that was a living wage society, apart from the slaves. Yep. And the slaves actually had a mechanism by which they could become Roman citizens, mm-hmm. and that was the strength of the empire. But, uh, you know, you had 154 public holidays for the plebeians. I didn't know that. Hundred. You had subsidised housing mm-hmm. in Rome. Mm-hmm. These were the citizens, not the slaves. Yeah. Citizens. Yep. Poor citizens. Yeah. Because they used to riot and cause a lot mm-hmm. of difficulty mm-hmm. and they did have some, even in the, during the period of the dictatorship, they had some say in politics. So you had to keep them happy but you didn't need them. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to work to keep the Roman Empire going because you had all the slaves and all the ba- mm-hmm. booty that was coming in from yep. the conquest. So you didn't need them. Yep. And there's there's a famous uh, story of a general coming, being involved in a campaign in um, in Spain, conquering Spain. He's coming across with his troops, mm-hmm. walking across, and he's coming across in these acres and acres of vineyards because mm-hmm. this was the great export of the Roman yep. Empire, acres and acres, and they were tended by slaves. Mm-hmm. 
and every Roman citizen had been displaced and the old Roman farms were in disrepair mm-hmm. and they had, you had know, these huge palaces with, with, the, with you know, the patricians mm-hmm. and they had a problem. Mm-hmm. They had a big problem because mm-hmm. they didn't need these people mm-hmm. and they didn't actually have the power to annihilate them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they had a living wage. Subsidized. To keep them near enough to being happy. That's right. Mm-hmm. 154 public holidays a year. Mm-hmm. That's what you had the Colosseum for. You'd go down mm-hmm. and say, oh, who are we going to rip apart today? Mm-hmm. You had subsidised uh, wheat, mm-hmm. subsidised oil, subsidised public housing. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to. In order. So maybe we're moving in that direction. We don't need people anymore, do we? I'd hope that a, a living wage isn't about social control. It's about no, no, no. I understand that, needs. but it is. It will be about social control initially. Mm-hmm. That's what yep. they want. Yeah, but it, we see it as a ba- basic need that you don't mm-hmm. actually need to be involved as a coal miner mm-hmm. or a timber worker. Yep. to survive and survive reasonably. There's, I mean, an interesting conversation around work. You know, work mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, it defines mm-hmm. who we are. So it's a matter of finding ways for people to do meaningful work. That's right. And it's also about having a realistic and a real safety net for those people that don't have work. And but, if you have that balance of the two, then you've got a decent yeah, society. But, but I, I think that in the future that we're not going to need that balance. We're going to need fewer and fewer people to actually keep society functioning. There's limits to automation, I think. You think um, so? Tell me. What do you think? Why? Well, what we're doing at this point is uh, just offshoring a lot of our jobs. So a lot mm. of those jobs still exist. It's just that they're in poorer paid countries with you know worse working conditions. Uh, you know, almost anything you do where you have automation, you still then have a, a service component. So now we're buying all our stuff online. So we're not yeah. paying people to be in a shop, but we're paying mm. people, you know, to be in an Amazon warehouse somewhere. So you know, the jobs in many instances, still do exist. The car jobs that have gone from Geelong are maybe in South Korea now, but a lot of them are still there. There is the pressure, of course, of automation in in the car industry as Mm. one example, but Mm. there is a point beyond which, you know, it's not going to be run by a machine. It is going to be run by people. And as society changes, look, you know, in this community, you know, a lot of the jobs are are in hospitality and service sector and things like that. So as some economies are lost and some industries are lost. New industries yeah, are always that, going that, to those, emerge. Those industries, those service industries can't actually absorb everyone. That's no, the they problem. can't, of course. Yeah. You know, you can't have, well, maybe you could have a coffee shop in every street. <laughs> it reminds me of Messina in um, Sicily. They've got it's a fascinating statistic. They've got a cake coffee shop for every 600 men, women and children in the city. And uh, these are family-owned little places mm-hmm. because in Italy there's a lot of protection for family yep. stores. Yep. But here, obviously, it's a different ballgame. To me, that's the issue. We're going to have a burgeoning population. Mm-hmm. You don't need coal miners anymore no. to mine coal, do you? No. Not really. Well, we don't need coal. And well, we don't need coal. That's what I'm saying. And, and also, it doesn't employ tens of thousands and hundreds mm. of thousands of people. And this mm. is what they want us to think. That mm. It doesn't, yeah. yeah. And renewables is already starting to employ, you know, not at more people but very close to it if you yeah. take in energy efficiency mm. plus new renewables. Mm. So, you know, of course it's, well, who's who's telling us the news? And it's like the Adani thing where you hear this figure of there'll be 10,000 jobs and yet the company says, oh, it'll be something closer to 1,400. Yeah. So there's always that notion of overinflation of the benefits of, of fossil fuels. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so you think, well, to me that seems a winnable struggle. Mm-hmm. As long as you can actually overcome the problem of uh, work, yep. where people work, without yep. being displaced and dislocated. Yep. Because the trouble is, as you know, in a capitalist society, you're well aware that if you don't have a job, mm. you're basically totally alienated and yep. displaced and your children have to be moved and schools and your connections. I mean, 
a lot of people are more concerned about not just the living mm. loss of the wage, especially mm. if they own their own home mm-hmm. and have to rely on some type of social yep. security benefit, but the fact that their community is destroyed. Yep, absolutely. So yep. Do we have any answers for that? Well, we have to have intervention. Mm. You know, we actually have to have governments intervene as industries change. So we're seeing that with the, the native forest logging sector at the moment. We're seeing it with the coal sector here. No one is going to invest new money in new coal, you know, and mm. the coal plants are getting old and, and, you know, WorkSafe is going to shut them down. So change is coming. And do we whistle and look away and then go, oh, gee, isn't it a shame those 600 guys lost their jobs or do we intervene? And, you know, we didn't intervene well enough in the car industry. Yeah, You know, when that was in decline, we're not intervening enough now, I don't think. Although I do think the state government in Victoria is starting to, you know, put some Mm. serious thinking into that transition. I don't know if we're doing it yet in the forestry sector. We need to intervene to make sure that people aren't just left behind, as happened when Kennett privatised the old State Electricity Commission. Mm. That's not good enough anymore. We actually have to look after people Mm. as some industries taper down and other industries taper up. So do you think we'd be... be should go back and look at the concept of the mixed economy where you've got public yes. and private yes. ownership of yep. services, not just essential services. Yep. So yeah. we would like to see public transport come back into public control, but mm. we like to see a mix of businesses. We think a, you know, a healthy ecosystem is is a diverse one and equally mm. true in economies. So you can have some government industry, you know, small scale, cooperatively owned. We'd like to see a lot more cooperatively owned businesses. So you know, a, a healthy mix is right. always going to be good for economy and society. Society, yeah, yeah. the three. Yeah. Because we don't actually have a cooperative collective um, sector here. It's very small. Exceptionally small, and there's a lot. There is a lot of it there, but we don't define it as cooperatives. You know, there are the the big industrial producers, the you know the dairy co-ops yeah, and things like that. Yeah. But we don't perceive them as co-ops. So no, I do perceive them. I remember, yeah. I remember the big demutualisation struggle yep. in the eighties, yep. which was which was a disaster. Yes. So, do they have a mandatory retirement age like High Court judges at FOE, or do you expect to go on forever? <laughs> I've got a few more years in me, I reckon. Well. Who, who, who kind of employs you? The members do, in effect. The members. So the members, you know, will kick in a bit of money a month. and yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's nobody knocking on the door, some youngster, you know, pimple-faced youngster saying, look, I'd like that job. It seems pretty good. There are no, well, no permanent jobs in the world today. I've been gone from the office for an hour, so I don't know what's You don't happened. know what's <laughs> happened. Could have been a coup. Indeed. Could have been anything could have happened in an hour. So you had to turn around to look at the clock, and this is, this is a little trick we use here at uh, yep. Radical Australia. We just lull you into a false sense of security. So how do you feel about the future? Pessimistic, optimistic, mixed? Mixed, uh, but optimistic. Mm-hmm. Change is coming in terms of climate. Politically, we're... Having lived, you know, we're living in an insanely volatile, volatile time, and volatility leads to opportunity. So, you know, history isn't over. You know, we're rewriting it every day, and we can make a better world. I honestly believe that, and I think if the left actually learns to speak to people where they are, we could actually articulate a vision and take people with us. You know, so that's a big task in front of us. But we're locked into a lot of climate change, and to get through that we're going to have to be a lot more resilient and that means to have much more engaged communities mm. uh, and that's a good thing because you know if you have engaged communities they're looking out for each other you get more inclusion and you actually get more resilience as well right. so I, I concentrate on that positive side on of you know what's side. coming have you left your anarchism behind or does it still play a role in your life 
It still plays a role. Uh, I mean, you know, Friends of the Earth is non-hierarchical. You know, we have wage equity, we have a flat decision-making structure. So, you know, that's part of the reason I've stayed there so long. They're Excuse a- me, did you say wage equity? Everybody gets the same wage in yes, Friends of the Earth? Yes, I'm not going to apply. <laughs> and I assume it's miserable too, like the poor staff here at 3CR. It's well, you know, we're we're working to get it to an equivalent wage rate, you know, to twelve dollars an hour or something. Uh, (laughs) Is that a unionised shop? I reckon Uh, if a union walked in, you'd have problems. Yeah, uh, a couple. Yes, I think about two thirds of us are in the union. So what union? ASU. ASU. Right, right. So, how do you feel about the future for your children? I feel pretty positive. Um, You know, I see them growing up. I live in Central Victoria now. I live in Castle Maine. North Northcote, as they call it, um, and I see they live in a you know a real thriving community, and they've got a lot of good support, and they've got a lot of mates, and it's a community that I think does look out for each other, and I feel I you know I feel hopeful. I think you know living up there, we've got more bushfires coming. Living in Melbourne, we've got more heat waves, we've got sea level rise, we've got more erratic weather. You know, we've got a lot of madness that's going to come, that's going to physically impact on us wherever we live. Uh, the rich will be cocooned to a large degree, but the rest of us will be out amongst mm. it. So, mm. you know, I I feel hopeful of their future. You're not one of these millennial people with guns and food no. stores in the backyard. No, my defence no. is community. <laughs> do you have a um, do you have a little fire shelter just out of no, interest? No, I don't. Uh, you don't think it's appropriate? Or no, no. No, the minute you start planning for the apocalypse, it's all over, I reckon. It's all over. Yep. Right. You've abandoned your hope. Right. All right. And um, you think life's been worthwhile? Yeah. Certainly better than the alternative, I'd say. And, um, you know, you make you find your meaning where you make it, I think, and where you, where you can, can look for it. So, yeah. Mm. So, so what's, what's your advice for anybody listening to this program who'd like to jump on board this, um, this train? Jump on board. You know, how do they do that? Being an activist is the most honourable profession on the planet, I reckon, you know, um, paid or unpaid or, you know, part-time or full-time. Just find a cause that matters for you and get involved. And, you know, if that's not right, you move on to the next one. But, you know, you don't you don't learn it by sitting on the couch. You don't learn it by sitting on social media. You learn it by doing it. Exactly. That's the key. You learn it by doing it. That hasn't changed. No. I mean, you don't want to get click RSI, click True. activism RSI. It's a very common problem. Mr. Campbell Walker, commonly known as Cam Walker to his friends, a 28-year survivor of Friends of the Earth, will retire at the age 70 when he's pushed out by some younger folk with a knife. Thank you for coming in. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's great to meet somebody who's made a commitment not just to their family and their community but to the planet. So it's a, it's a great pleasure talking to you and hopefully our listeners learn something today. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Joe. That the days are loaded Everybody rolls With their fingers crossed Everybody knows The war is over Everybody knows The good guys lost Everybody knows The fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this 
die Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem rose Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows. Everybody knows. 